Cha. Hello and welcome to City Breaks Edinburgh, episode 12, More Edinburgh Writers. I'm Marion Jones and this is J.K. Rowling. It's impossible to live in Edinburgh without sensing its literary heritage everywhere. Oh yes, indeed, and as I think I mentioned at the end of last week's episode, it wasn't possible to deal with Edinburgh's literary heritage in one episode. A second is needed, and this is it. I turned first to a website called www.list.co.uk because they have an entry on A Guide to Edinburgh's Authors and Books, which opens like this. If you have any doubts about Edinburgh's claim to be a literary city, consider the following. The main station is named after a novel. That's Sir Walter Scott's Waverley. One of its football teams is named after another novel. That's The Heart of Midlothian, also Walter Scott. It has the biggest monument to an author anywhere in Britain, the Scott Monument in Prince's Street Gardens. Edinburgh hosts the world's biggest book festival every summer. It is the birthplace of Scottish printing that dates back to 1508 and has been a centre of publishing ever since. And yes, as mentioned last time, in 2004, it was designated the world's very first ever UNESCO City of Literature. If you go and visit Edinburgh, you can sit in the very cafes where Harry Potter was written. You can drink in the Poets' Pub in Rose Street, where many poets, particularly in the mid-20th century, used to meet, and which became such an Edinburgh institution that it was painted, captured in oils by Sandy Moffat, and entitled The Poets' Pub. You can see it hanging in the Scottish National Portrait Gallery today. You can also have a drink in the Oxford Bar, the local for one detective inspector Rebus, in the Ian Rankin novels, and you can go on plenty of guided tours, Rebus tours, train spotting tours, a literary pub tour, and not forgetting, especially if you have children with you, the Harry Potter tour, the Harry Potter shop, etc. A different website, scotland.org, also has a lot to say about Edinburgh as a literary site. It has inspired more than 500 novels, they say, Everything from Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde to Irving Welsh's Train Spotting. Percy Shelley came to Edinburgh to be married. William Hazlitt came to be divorced. John Buchan worked for the Edinburgh publisher's Thomas Nelson. Walter Scott was an Edinburgh lawyer who practised for many years in the city. R.M. Ballantyne, author of Coral Island, was at Edinburgh Academy, as was R.L. Stevenson. Rebecca West was educated at George Watson's Ladies' College and Ian Fleming's character, James Bond, was sent to the public school fets, as was Tony Blair. And, as the website explains, in James Bond's case, he was sent to fets because he had committed, quote, an indiscretion with a lady's maid at Eton. St Trinian's is said to have been based on an Edinburgh school of the same name, and James Gillespie's school for girls was the alma mater of Muriel Spark, and it was on that institution that she based the school at which Miss Jean Brodie taught. The war poets Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon were sent to convalesce in Edinburgh during the First World War, that being the inspiration for Pat Barker's novel, Regeneration. So, I'm sure you're getting the idea, and the plan for today's episode is to take a number of these Edinburgh writers in chronological order and just tell you a little bit about their connection to the city and about some of the things which they wrote. We're going right back to the 15th century to start with, one William Dunbar born in 1459, the city's first recognised poet and one who worked at the court of King James IV of Scotland. 
when I went searching to see what his well-known poems were called, the one which kept coming up is called He Isn't a Dog, He Is a Lamb, addressed apparently to the Queen herself, Margaret Tudor, because one of Dunbar's friends was her servant, a servant whom the Queen had begun to distrust. And so he patiently explained in verse that she needn't be frightened of him because he's not a dog, he's a lamb. Here are a few lines as a sample. Said servant, confusingly, has the same name as the king, James, and he's described as a ward repair, which I imagine means he'd probably something to do with the queen's wardrobe. So here goes. Oh, gracious princess, good and fair, do well to James, your ward repair, whose faithful brother, best friend I am. He isn't a dog, he is a lamb. I probably ought to say at this point, many of these Scots writers wrote, of course, in the Scots language, I'm going to read what's there in front of me in print as best I can. I'm not going to make a big effort to do the accent because I'm sure I'll murder it. So please bear with. William Dunbar wrote another poem called The Thistle and the Rose. Very fittingly called that because it was for the wedding of James IV, the King of Scotland, to Margaret Tudor, daughter of Henry VII. So a wedding that it was hoped would unite the two kingdoms, England, represented by the Rose, and Scotland by the thistle. Unfortunately, history tells us that that particular mission didn't succeed because war broke out, I think it was about ten years later. But anyway, here are a few lines by way of example. And do note the cleverness of William Dunbar referring to Margaret as a pearl because he knew, I didn't, that Margarita is in fact the Latin for pearl. And in these few lines he is praising her and welcoming her to Scotland. Welcome to be our Princess of Honour our pearl, our pleasance and our paramour, our peace, our play, our plain felicity, Christ the conserve from all adversity. And by way of one last example, a few lines from something called Remonstrance to the King, in which William Dunbar is asking for favour and advancement, seeking promotion, if you will, and criticising other people whom he's seen being promoted and whom he thinks do not rate quite as highly as his good self. Some of the people following his highness, he says, may be gracious enough, but others are a sort more miserable, as he puts it, and they won't do the king any good at all. Then he goes for it and makes his plea with that old complaint that it's really just not fair. These people, he says, are all rewarded and not I, so they get the prizes and I don't. And here's his reaction to that. And on this false world I cry, fie! Yes, I think we've all been there. OK, going to leap forward to the 18th century now, to one James Boswell, Edinburgh-born, friend and companion of Samuel Johnson, who wrote the famous biography of Johnson, said by many to be the greatest biography ever written in the English language. He also wrote an account of their travels together through Scotland, about which, although he was a Scot himself, he was really quite rude on occasions. On the language, for example, he wrote... It is the rude speech of a barbarous people who have few thoughts to express and are content, as they conceive grossly, to be grossly understood. He spent most of his adult life in London, being a man of letters, but he did bring Samuel Johnson up to Scotland and they visited Edinburgh. So here are a couple of little extracts from what he wrote about that. I'm afraid, again, not totally complimentary to his home city. For example, he talks about how the good doctor... Johnson, of course, had, unluckily, as Boswell puts it, a bad specimen of Scottish cleanliness. 
This is what happened. Quote, he then drank no fermented liquor, so he asked to have his lemonade made sweeter, upon which the waiter, with his greasy fingers, lifted a lump of sugar and put it into it. The doctor, in indignation, threw it out of the window. A little later in the evening, Boswell took Johnson down the high street to his own house, where Johnson was going to stay, and again Boswell, seeing the city perhaps through his visitor's eyes, was a little embarrassed, this time about the smells of the city. Quote, I could not prevent his being assailed by the evening effluvia of Edinburgh. I heard a late baronet of some distinction in the political world observe that walking the streets of Edinburgh at night was pretty perilous, and a good deal odiferous. The peril is much abated by the care which the magistrates have taken to enforce the city laws against throwing foul water from the windows, but from the structure of the houses in the old town, which consist of many stories, in each of which a different family lives, and there being no covered sewers, the odour still continues. Poor Boswell, but he does go on to explain that although Johnson did notice the smell, he also, quote, acknowledged that the breadth of the street and the loftiness of the buildings on each side made a noble appearance. Also in the 18th century, the poet Robert Ferguson, born in 1750. He died aged only 24, after a head injury in an accident, so that explains why he's not so well known today, although he was so admired by Robert Burns, that, finding out that Ferguson had died in poverty, Burns himself paid for the headstone on his grave in the Canongate Kirkyard. Ferguson did write about a hundred poems, some in Scots and some in English. So here are one or two examples. One from a poem called The Daft Days, published in 1722, in something called The Weekly Magazine, this being apparently the first poem it had ever printed in the Scots language. And the title, The Daft Days, refers to the Christmas period and all the jollity that happens in that time. It opens, though, rather gloomily, with references to the Edinburgh weather in December. Quote, now murk December's dowie face, glows out the rigs with sour grimace. It talks about the misery of the winter. Mankind but scanty pleasure gleams from snowy hill or barren plain, when winter, midst his nipping train with frozen spear, sends drift o'er all his bleak domain. But then things cheer up with mention of merry Yule, when small are our cares, and mirth abounds. And there's lots of writing about glee and drink and fiddlesticks and highland reels. He seems to be particularly fond of highland reels, writing, Nought can cheer the heart so well as can a canty highland reel. It even vivifies the heel to skip and dance. Lifeless is he what can feel its influence. Ferguson had Jacobite sympathies, which he wrote about, for example, in a poem called The Ghosts, about two ghosts in an Edinburgh graveyard, bemoaning the fact that England and Scotland are joined together in one union. Black be the day that heir to England's ground, Scotland was eked by the union's bond. He was very much in favour of a Stuart Scotland, when, quote, Royal Jamie swayed the sovereign rod and he wrote other poems with very Scottish titles, Elegy on the Death of Scots Music, and The Rivers of Scotland. But certainly, best known of all is Old Reeky, which I have mentioned before, about a day in the life of the city of Edinburgh, a love song to Edinburgh really, although 
absolutely not stinting on what I saw in one review referred to as its filth, beauty, decay and glory. It's about 300 lines long and a little difficult to understand in places, but let's have a few quotes to enjoy. So, starting with the negative, he too mentions the smell. Quote, For stink instead of perfumes grow, and clarty odours fragrant flow. There are a few lines on the prostitutes found in Edinburgh streets at night. Quote, Near some lamppost with dowy face, with heavy ain and sour grimace, stands she that beauty long had kenned, boredom her trade, and vice her end. But, it concludes, if you know Edinburgh, you will be struck by its beauty, maybe even moved to tears. Quote, as long as forth wheats Lothian's shore, as long's on fife her billows roar, so lang shall ilk with country's dear to thy remembrance give a tear. And it is the poem which uses the words old reeky, reeky as in foul-smelling, a label which stuck to Edinburgh for centuries. But despite that, towards the end of the poem, the assertion that having to leave Edinburgh would always be a sad thing. Quote, Riki, farewell, I ne'er could part with thee, but with a dowy heart. Into the 19th century then, Arthur Conan Doyle, born in Edinburgh and educated there. He studied medicine at the university. He worked as a botanist at the Royal Botanic Gardens. He was a practising doctor, but he wrote alongside, and although he found it difficult to get published in the early years, he did eventually find great fame and fortune as the writer, of course, of the detective stories starring Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. Popular as much for their ingenious plots as for the emphasis on the character of the two men and the relationship between them. Readers particularly enjoy Holmes's logic and reasoning powers, and it's thought that all of this was inspired by one of the doctors at the university who had been responsible for Conan Doyle's training. Alan Foster, author of Book Lovers Edinburgh, explains. When Arthur Conan Doyle was a young unknown medical student in the late 1870s at Edinburgh University, his most memorable teacher was Dr Joseph Bell, whose talent for making lightning diagnoses, combined with his acute powers of observation, inspired Doyle in later life to use him as the model for the world's greatest consulting detective, Sherlock Holmes. Arthur Conan Doyle himself confirmed this, writing, Sherlock Holmes was the literary embodiment of my memory of a professor of medicine at Edinburgh University who would sit in the patient's waiting room with a face like a red Indian and diagnose the people as they came in before they had even opened their mouths. He would tell them their symptoms, he would give them details of their lives and he would hardly ever make a mistake. When Dr Bell read this, he wrote to Conan Doyle and said, surely I can't have been more than a minor influence and he got the following reply. It is most certainly to you that I owe Sherlock Holmes, although, in the stories, I have the advantage of being able to place him in all sorts of dramatic positions. I do not think that his analytical work is in the least an exaggeration of some of the effects which I have seen you produce in the outpatient ward. It has to be said that most of the stories are set elsewhere, but I did read somewhere the notion that, quote, it's easy to see how the whispering closes and cobbled streets of Edinburgh could have inspired the many mysteries investigated by Mr Holmes. And there is a statue of Sherlock Holmes on Piketty Place in Edinburgh, marking the birthplace of his creator, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. 
also 19th century, one William McGonagall. You may recognise the name from Harry Potter, and yes, there is a connection, but I'm afraid if you Google information on Mr McGonagall, what you find is the idea that he might be the world's worst poet. He wrote to Queen Victoria and asked if she would be his patron. She politely wrote back and said no thank you, but he turned up at Balmoral anyway to perform for her, and when he arrived, he introduced himself as the Queen's Poet. They turned him away and said actually we've already got one of those, one Alfred Tennyson, and it wasn't just Queen Victoria who didn't rate his work. Here, from the Scottish Poetry Library website, comes the following. William McGonagall has long been regarded as the worst poet in the history of the English language. Nevertheless, his unwitting butchery of the art form continues to be enjoyed for the comic qualities of its erratic scansion, wince-inducing rhymes and naive treatment of weighty subject matter, all of which are present in his most infamous poem, The Tay Bridge Disaster. So we must have a few lines from that. Please bear in mind that the Taybridge disaster took the lives of 90 people, a disaster which of course was a talking point for many years in Edinburgh. Here then the first two verses of William McGonagall's poem. Beautiful railway bridge of the silvery Tay, alas, I am very sorry to say that 90 lives have been taken away on the last Sabbath day of 1879, which will be remembered for a very long time. "'Twas about seven o'clock at night, and the wind it blew with all its might, "'and the rain came pouring down, and the dark clouds seemed to frown, "'and the demon of the air seemed to say, "'I'll blow down the Bridge of Tay.'" There are six more verses, but I'm going to spare you them. You can easily find them on Google, should you have a mind to do that. Here's the Scottish Poetry Library website again, describing William McGonagall as a man of apparent supreme self-confidence. His readings were regularly attended by riotous audiences throwing rotten fruit and other projectiles, with such commotion that he was eventually banned from public performance in his home city. Mr McGonagall is buried in Greyfriars Kirkyard in Edinburgh, and it is said that J.K. Rowling saw his name there and took it as inspiration for her character in the Harry Potter series Professor McGonagall. I do not know whether she knew his history. I suspect she probably did. Two more Edinburgh authors, born in the mid-19th century, are Kenneth Graham, author of The Wind in the Willows, and J.M. Barry, author of Peter Pan. Both very successful authors in their own time and ever since, but neither of them really setting their works in Scotland. So I'm going to move on to Norman McCaig, the Edinburgh-born poet, born in fact in 1910, educated at the Royal High School and then the University of Edinburgh, who lived in the city all his life as a primary school teacher and published poet, who wrote mainly about the natural world and was very popular. He did write at least one poem about the city itself, about the tenement buildings in the old town, which opens like this. Hot light is smeared as thick as paint on these ramshackle tenements. Stones smell of dust. And he goes on to write about some of the people who live so high up above the courtyard and hints too at the ghosts, which he thinks are ever-present in the city. Quote, Cliff dwellers have poked out from their high cave mouths brilliant rags on drying lines. They hang still, dazzling in the glare, and lead the eye up ledge by ledge to where a chimney's tilted helmet winks and shines. And water from a broken drain 
splashes a glassy hand out in the air that breaks in an unbraiding rain and falls, still fraying, to become a stain that spreads by footsteps, ghosting everywhere. The novelist Muriel Spark was born in Edinburgh in 1918. She too grew up in the city, went to school there. I've read that she worked as a spy during World War II. Who knew? And after the war, she began writing. Between the 1950s and mid-70s, she published roughly one novel a year, as well as short stories and plays and essays, but it's really for one work that she remains very well known today, and that, of course, is The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie. Set in Edinburgh, the story of a schoolteacher there who chooses a group of six girls to be her elite pupils and teaches them really quite unconventionally, trying to give them a love of the finer things in life of art and culture but with also a more worrying element, her attraction to pre-war Italian fascism. The book is very much based around Miss Brodie herself, her personality, her relationship with the pupils, but there are some descriptions of Edinburgh. For example, this one, from the day when she's taking them to the grass market because she's decided that these rather middle-class little girls really should see the other side of the city too. Quote, But Edinburgh, said the man, was a beautiful city, more beautiful then than it is now. Of course, the slums have been cleared. The old town was always my favourite. We used to love to explore the grass market and so on. Architecturally speaking, there is no finer sight in Europe. And then a little later, they're passing down the high street, the Cathedral of St Giles. Quote, We will not go into St Giles, said Miss Brodie, because the day draws late. But I presume you have all been to St Giles Cathedral. They had nearly all been in St Giles, with its tattered, blood-stained banners of the past. Sandy had not been there, and did not want to go. The outsides of old Edinburgh churches frightened her. They were of such dark stone, like presences, almost the colour of the castle rock, and were built so warningly with their upraised fingers. The book was a huge success. It ran as a play on Broadway, It became a film starring Maggie Smith. I think she won an Oscar for her role and the expression much quoted from it ever since has been the fact that Miss Brodie referred to her girls as the crème de la crème. Then there's Alexander McCall Smith, born in Zimbabwe in 1948, but educated partly in Scotland, where as an adult he worked as a professor of medical law and although he had further spells in Africa, he returned eventually to live in Edinburgh. His best-known books are Set in Botswana, the number one ladies' detective agency, bestsellers translated into 46 different languages, but he has a second series too, started in 2005, which is set in Edinburgh, the Scotland Street series. The first one, 44 Scotland Street, began life as a serialisation in The Scotsman. The Scotland Street of the title does exist. It's in The New Town, although number 44 doesn't exist. I think there are nine or ten novels in the series now, others entitled Love Over Scotland, The Unbearable Lightness of Scones, and Sunshine on Scotland Street. And to give you a flavour from a review of 44 Scotland Street, the following description of what it's about. The wide cast of characters who live at 44 Scotland Street. Love triangles, a lost painting, intriguing new friends, and an encounter with a famous Scottish crime writer are just a few of the ingredients that add to this delightful and witty portrait of Edinburgh society. Alexander McCall Smith himself has said, quote, 
I have tried to say something about life in Edinburgh which will strike readers as being recognisably about this extraordinary city, and yet at the same time be a bit of light-hearted fiction. And here is the way in which he introduces Scotland Street in the first novel. Quote, not Murray Place or Dune Terrace, not even Drummond Place, the handsome square from which Scotland Street descended in a steep slope. This street was on the edge of the bohemian part of Edinburgh Newtown, the part where lawyers and accountants were outnumbered, just by others. There are scenes in the novel set, for example, in the tea room at Jenner's, the classically traditional department store in the centre of Edinburgh. There's a description from the food hall there. Quote, there were rows of shortbread, tins of traditional oat cakes, lines of marmalade jars, nests of pickles and spices. And there's a very Scottish scene set at the Conservative Ball, for which Highland dress was required, and to which Bruce wears, quote, his full formal Highland outfit, his Prince Charlie jacket with its silver buttons, his Anderson kilt, the dress sporran that his uncle had given him for his 21st birthday. But the scene turns a little farcical when it transpires that Bruce, dressing in a hurry, has forgotten to put on any underpants. So referencing that age-old joke about kilts, and when he goes to call on his boss on the way to the Conservative ball, he is reduced to sneaking upstairs to find a drying rack in the bathroom and stealing a pair of underpants belonging to his boss from there. Totally different in tone, Irving Welsh, born in Leith in 1958, also schooled in Edinburgh but quite differently because he left at 16, did an apprenticeship, various jobs, had a spell in London where he got involved in petty crimes and landed a suspended jail sentence and then decided to reform and eventually became the writer of, I think it's 12 novels and several short story collections, the best known of which is the 1993 Spotting, which is set in Edinburgh, written in the strong Scottish dialect, and tells the story of a group of heroin addicts, very bleak in tone. You can tell that just from the section headings, of which there are seven, which read like this. Kicking, relapsing, kicking again, blowing it, exile. Home. Exit. Here's what one review had to say about it. The underbelly of Edinburgh ripped open and laid bare. It lifts the lid on the heroin fueled realities of life in the capital shooting galleries in the 80s and 90s. After a few pages, you quickly tune your ear to the accent and then relish the roller coaster ride. It's profoundly shocking and very, very funny. Desperate scenes of drug taking, the horrors of trying to withdraw and themes of class, oppression and poverty, but also a certain fondness for Edinburgh. Most of it, I'm afraid, is completely unquotable on the family podcast because of the language, but I did manage to find a little extract in which two of the characters are making a grudging reference to the beauty of the city of Edinburgh. Again, I'll try and just read what's there, and you have to bear in mind that it's phonetically written very much in a Scottish accent. Quote, they say you have to live in a place to know it, but you have to come fresh to it to really see it. I remember walking along the Prince's Street with Spud. We both hate walking along that hideous street, deadened by tourists and shoppers, the twin curses of modern capitalism. I looked up at the castle and thought, it's just another building to us. It registers in our heads, just like the British home stores or Virgin Records. We were heading to those places on a shoplifting spree. But when you come back out of Waverley Station after being away for a bit, you think, hey, this is Nibad. 
Having said I can't quote the novel because of the language, I did read the whole thing and I found it absolutely fascinating. And yes, once I got used to it, not that difficult to understand. So if you're not too easily shocked by endless swearing, do give it a go. And moving on then to another writer born in 1960, Ian Rankin. Born in Fife, but educated at Edinburgh University, and he's lived in the city, I think, pretty much ever since. His first novel was published in 1986, and his first Detective Inspector Rebus novel in 1987, a series which grew into the bestsellers, translated into 22 different languages, detective stories set in Edinburgh, which I've seen described as part of Scotland's tartan noir genre, and whose main character, Rebus, is a native of the city. He lives in Arden Street, he drinks regularly at the Oxford Bar in the New Town, and Rankin himself says that Edinburgh is his muse. Quote, I started writing novels while an undergraduate student, in an attempt to make sense of the city of Edinburgh, using a detective as my protagonist. Each book adds another piece to the jigsaw that is modern Scotland, asking questions about the nation's politics, economy, psyche and history, and perhaps pointing towards its possible future. All the books I looked at did have references to very Edinburgh topics. For example, in Black and Blue, Rebus is investigating the brutal death of a North Sea oil worker, and the book Set in Darkness, published in the year 2000, has its plot which centres around the building of the new Scottish Parliament. It opens with characters looking around Queensbury House, an actual building down by Holyrood, which was going to form part of the site for the new Scottish Parliament. Here are the opening lines. Darkness was falling as Rebus accepted the yellow hard hat from his guide. This'll be the admin block, we think, the man said. His name was David Gilfillan. He worked for Historic Scotland and was coordinating the archaeological survey of the Queensbury House. The original building is late 17th century. Lord Hatton was its original owner. It was extended at the end of the century. After coming into the ownership of the first Duke of Queensbury, it would have been one of the grandest houses on Canongate and only a stone's throw from Holyrood. All around them, demolition work was taking place. Queensbury House itself would be saved but the more recent additions either side of it were going. Workmen crouched on roofs, removing slates, tying them into bundles, which were lowered by rope to waiting skips. There were enough broken slates underfoot to show that the process was imperfect. Rebus adjusted his hard hat and tried to look interested in what Gilfillan was saying. All of that actually happened. Queensbury House was saved and incorporated into the new Parliament building site and the stories from history that Gilfillan has just told are real ones. And soon after that, another well-known ghost story is told by one of the workmen. Quote, One of the young servants was working in the kitchen. The Duke of Queensbury was Secretary of State. It was his job to lead the negotiations, but he had a son, James Douglas, Earl of Drumlanrig. The story goes, James was off his head. What happened? Gilfillan looked up through the open hatch. All right up there, he called. Fine, anyone else want to take a look? They ignored him. Ellen Wiley repeated her question. He ran the servant through with a sword, Gilfillan said, then roasted him in one of the kitchen fireplaces. James was sitting munching away when he was found. Dear God, Ellen Wiley said. You believe this? Bobby Hogan slid his hands into his pockets. Gilfillan shrugged. It's a matter of record. 
and then in the next scene the workmen climb up into the roof space and it becomes clear that the stories of ghosts and murders are not just a matter from history, but come right up to the present day. Here's what happens when they discover a blocked-off fireplace. Wonder when they blocked it off, Grant Hood asked. Hogan tapped the metal sheet. Doesn't look exactly prehistoric. Gilfillan and Marlene had lifted away the second sheet. Now everyone was staring at the revealed fireplace. Gilfillan thrust his torch towards it, though the arc lamp gave light enough. There could be no mistaking the desiccated corpse for anything other than what it was. I think that's quite a typical extract, the weaving of real Edinburgh stories into the tales of Detective Inspector Rebus and his colleagues. You can go on special Rebus walking tours in Edinburgh, visiting many of the locations from the novels. One, the Life and Times of Inspector Rebus tour, takes you, would you believe, to the city morgue, I think the outside only, and to St Leonard's Police Station, which is Rebus's base, and to lots of other sites mentioned in the stories. And as you go round, there will of course be readings too, adding in the atmosphere of the novels to bring it all to life. And finally, J.K. Rowling, born in 1965, not in Edinburgh, but in England, but Edinburgh was the city where she chose to live from the 1990s after her divorce when she was starting again and where she began writing the first Harry Potter novel which was going to change her life and circumstances forever. The first one, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, was published in 1997, introducing the world to Hogwarts and to its famous pupils Harry and Ron and Hermione, becoming eventually the world's best-selling book series ever and also a huge cinema success. I don't think Edinburgh features as such, but it has to be said that places in Edinburgh certainly did inspire some of the settings for the novel. Diagon Alley, for example, inspired by Victoria Street, as discussed in a previous episode. Hogwarts inspired by the George Heriot School, again already mentioned. And yes, of course, there are also Harry Potter tours in Edinburgh, where you can see those places, where you can also go past the cafes where J.K. Rowling is said to have written the books the Elephant House Cafe, the Spoon Cafe in Nicholson Street, and needless to say, there's also a Harry Potter shop full of all the merchandise you could possibly want. So, having begun the episode with the quote from J.K. Rowling about it being impossible to live in Edinburgh and not be aware of its endless literary heritage, it's quite fitting to end with her too. I'll just leave you with the idea that the next episode, which will go out in a fortnight's time, will be entitled witches, ghosts and cemeteries, because I have collected together quite a lot of stories on those three things, and they do seem to fit together rather nicely. So I hope you'll be able to join me for that, and in the meanwhile, I'd like to sign off, as usual, in Gaelic, by saying thank you and goodbye. So here goes, Tapa leave, Agus, Marshin leave. <laughs> <laughs>